So that was uplifting and inspiring. Okay. Okay, so we learned about Chachma. Right, Chachma is the faculty that conceives. Conceiving means getting a concept into your head for the first time and keeping it there. Right? And in your head doesn't mean you're consciously thinking about it. And we spoke about some of the features of Chachma is the open-mindedness, the dedication, the um, curiosity, the willingness to um, let it bother you for extended periods of time, all those kinds of things. Um, suspending your preconceived notions. Right? Someone with Chachma is not a skeptical person. Do you want to hear a good Chachma story? Yeah. Okay. So when I was in Yeshiva, there was a, 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 a man who came to the Yeshiva for a week. It's a Balshiva. Or, I don't know if he was really Balshiva. But he came for a week. And he came and his, he changed his name twice during that week. So he came and his name was Adam. And then he changed it to Adam, which is the Hebrew version. So that makes sense. And then by the end of the week, he insisted on being called Adama, which means dirt, because that's the root of the word Adam. Anyway. So you will find out. Anyway, there was a Febrengen that week. And um, at the Febrengen, he got up very sincerely and intensely, and he says, I can no longer deny my experiences. I have been to the world of Yitzira, which is the second of these spiritual worlds, going from the bottom. And so most of us are thinking, like, oh, oh, complete, oh. you're completely nuts, right? However, one Bachar, employing at least some degree of Chachma, said, what was it like? Because, like, I mean, who am I to say? Maybe he was like, how do I know, right? And then he looked at him very seriously and said, it was pink with bubbles. <laughs> then it turns out the guy was on a lot of drugs. <laughs> and, into Islam, and into Islamic uh, mysticism. And left yeshiva. Um, but the idea of like, no, I mean, let, let's hear the guy out. Like, how do you know, right? Like, how do you know ahead of time that maybe he's not telling you the truth? Now, once, like, at, this is another feature of Chachma, is that Chachma also has this sense to pick up that something is just completely false from the outset. Okay? Now, that's not a rejection of the idea not allowing you to hear it. It's hearing it, and you can, Chachma can hear the falsehood, the incoherence, the inintelligibility, the nonsensicalness of it. Okay? Which is another thing, right? When you present a problem to a wise person, they can pick up that there's something false in how it's being presented. So one other aspect of Chachma is it has a kind of a truth sensor to it. So the stronger your Chachma, not that you more, you, you can kind of, I guess, sniff out that this is, there's something false here. There's something problematic here. That's going to be important as we keep going. It's what mathematicians, when mathematicians speak about intuition, is what they mean. When most people speak about intuition, I'm very, I don't like the word intuition the way most people use it, because it seems to me that most people use the word intuition as a sense that they don't know where it comes from. And therefore it covers a range of things from like indigestion to Chachma. Okay. Now, mathematicians, um, I would tell a math joke, but my, my, my experience in telling math jokes is I'm the only one that finds them funny. <laughs> um, but I will do it anyway and risk the public humiliation. So there's a mathematician and he's, he's going through a complicated proof to his fellow mathematician and he's saying, and now from here to here is just intuitive. And the other mathematician says, well, I don't think it's intuitive. And the first mathematician looks and says, hmm, okay. Give me a minute. And goes back to his office, locks the door, and you hear frantic um, 
chalk on the chalkboard for six hours, and afterwards he comes up covered with chalk. The chalkboard is covered with fancy equations, and he says, I proved it. It is intuitive. <laughs> now, because mathematicians, when they say intuitive, they mean a very specific thing, which is when you introspect as to why must something be true, there is this like deep inner voice that seems to tell you this must be true, this cannot be true, that itself can't be explained. That's also an aspect of Chachmah. Um, and isolating that point is actually requires a lot of reflection and introspection. Um, but some people just like, I have an intuition that you know, our vacation is going to get rained on. Might just be because you're just overall pessimistic person and tend to always think the worst of everything, in which case I don't think it's associated with Chachmah at all. So it really depends what you mean by intuition. Okay. Now, we are after the period. When? On page 11 in my book. When one brings forth this power from the potential to the actual, that is, when a person cognates... Have you ever used the word cognate? No. Have you? No. As a ver- no, no, as, as, no, as a... No, cognate, like, like, like I was, like, I, like I, I didn't really understand um, what the professor was saying, but after taking notes, I really cognated a lot on it, and then, you don't... I don't know what, okay? With his intellect, it's a verb, right? He cognates with his intellect in order to understand a thing truly and profoundly as it evolves from the concept which he has conceived in his intellect. This is called Bina. Okay. That's a lot of fancy words. Okay. So, now in the Hebrew, okay, the Hebrew verb there is, the Hebrew word there for cognate, is Mizbainen. This is the most important verb in the entire Chabad literature. Okay? So I'm going to first give you a grammar lesson. The most important verb. The most important verb in the entire Chabad literature is the one that he so helpfully translates as cognates, which nobody knows what that means. Okay, it seems like maybe there's a bit of obfuscation going on there. Okay, in Hebrew, I need a marker so we can just write some stuff on the board. Yeah, get... Cogitate. Cogitate. Will that help you? Nope. Okay, so. Cognate, cogitate. I thought it might help me understand. Maybe. Make some. Okay, so. Okay. Now, first off, does everyone see that the root phase oh. nun is in this word here? Yep. Okay. 
So this word and this word, they really have the same root. Yeah. The key idea of these bainen, or these bainen, depending on your pronunciation, is this idea of ina. For right now, I'm going to use the word understanding without really clarifying what I mean by understanding. Bina means understanding. This prefix, lehit, means to make something happen to oneself. So lehit bonein would mean to make oneself understand. The double nun indicates a level of intensity, which means to make oneself understand very, very well. Okay. That is the key idea. So there's an idea of understanding. Then there is the act of making oneself understand, and not making oneself understand in a casual way, but making oneself understand in a very powerful and intense and clear way. So, now, raise your hand if you have ever um, seen the word meditate in a Chabad publication or article about meditating on God and meditating this or meditating that. Please raise your hand if you've ever seen the word meditate. Okay. Now, what is the Hebrew word that they are translating as the word of meditate? Lihisbainen. And the root of Lihisbainen is to understand. Now, I'm going to ask you a very simple question. Let's say you're not doing very well in chemistry. Now, that could be for many reasons, but probably one of the reasons is you don't really understand chemistry very well, right? And some people don't. Did anyone have that experience in chemistry yeah, class? Yes. Okay. Now, if you went to the, you went to, the, I don't know, some, some, someone for advice and said, you know what you should do? You should meditate more on chemistry. And that will help you do well in class. <laughs> what is, does that strike you as the right kind of advice? No. Why not? Like, what is the meaning of the word meditate in your mind that that doesn't seem to make sense? Now, I want to be clear. It could make sense to you, but that might be because you're using the word meditate differently than the people are saying, though. But we just want to get clear what we mean by the meaning of these words because there are things that happen in our minds. Sit on the topic. Sit like on the stare topic. On, stare at it, process it, but with no further Okay, does anyone, does anyone think that meditating on chemistry would help them, you know, do better in chemistry? Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. Okay, yeah. why? Well, if you define meditation as contemplation, contemplating chemistry and trying to understand chemistry by the things around you and by what you're like, it, it's more of a broad contemplation of the subject. Right. So this is this is the issue with this is the issue. <coughs> when you use a word that describes a mental activity, it's very easy for the word to be misconstrued. Now the, when the Rebbe would translate the, this word, his vainim, or his vainimus, um, into, into English, the word that the Rebbe tended to use more frequently is contemplate and reflect, sometimes ponder. Okay? Now, if you take something that you don't understand, okay, how do you make yourself understand it? That's an interesting question. What do you do to make yourself understand something you don't understand? Well, prerequisite number one is you kind of have to know what you don't understand. One of the things that usually happens, like, and I teach Gemara, so Bachem gets stuck all the time. Like, I don't understand it. And then my first question is, what don't you understand? And then their answer is, everything. I don't know. Like, okay, well, 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 then we might as well just quit at this point. What don't you understand? 
Now, figuring out what you don't understand, that's kind of, that, 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 there's kind of almost a catch-22. If you, if you don't understand it, how are you supposed to know what the thing is that you don't understand? So I'm going to give you a physical analogy to this. Okay, can you, if you were to grab some water, I mean, like, literally, just, like, stick your hand in the bathroom and grab some water. Can you, like, grab some water and take it out like that? I mean, I'm sure there's, like, little drops there, but you can't, like, hold it. Why not? What? No, I'm, like, like, I'm not asking a chemistry question, just, like, a real-life question. It's not, why? Saying you can't grab it. What is it about the water? Be, pretend I'm two. It doesn't have a specific form, right? When, so, right, in order to grasp something, it has to keep its physical shape even when you touch it. What happens is you try and touch water, it just changes its shape to move around your fingers. Okay, that's why you can't grasp air either. Okay, well, here's the question. How do you know that you can't grasp water? How do you know you're trying to grasp water? How do you know? How do you know? How do you know? Forget how you know, the, what do you know the name. How do you know there's water in front of you? You see it. You see it. You, 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 so two things. Number one, you see it. So number one, you see it. So you're aware of that thing I can't grasp. Number two, even as you're attempting to grasp it, what happens? You feel your hand passing through it, right? Which means there has to be a way of being, of being aware of it, being connected with it other than grasping for you to realize I can't grasp it. If your only way to know of something was to grasp it, you would never know that you can't grasp water because you never grasped it. It's like, there's a famous story where the, where the Rambam argued that someone who was blind from birth could never be cured with the medical knowledge of the time. And um, so he was set up in the, in the court and um, they, had, they, they, they had this person who was blind from birth and then the physicians cured him and all of a sudden he could see. And what did the Rambam do to show that this was a fake? He went over to the person and um, he took out a red handkerchief and he said, what color is this? And the person says, it's red. Now, how could the person know it's red? The only way to know what color something is is to see it, right? There's only one sense that picks up on color, right? right? But the existence of water, you can pick it up with your eyes. You can pick it up with, right? Grasping is not the only way you know the existence of the water. So I can see the water, I can feel the water, I can hear the water, and yet I know when I try and grasp the water, something doesn't happen. Which means that... In order to make yourself understand something, you have to have some other mental attachment to it that's pre-understanding, that's kind of focusing the whole endeavor. Okay? We have a sense of, there's something here that I don't understand, and it's, it's here, it's not over there, it's, it's in this issue, and it's not over that issue. Okay? What faculty is that? Is that the faculty of making yourself understand? That this is a prerequisite for making yourself understand. This is also a facet of Chachma. What is it that gives you a sense of this is the thing I don't yet understand? Stay focused on this. Make sure you, this is the thing that's not yet clear. And when you have that, then you can actually grasp it. Now, the analogy, therefore, is that Chachma is like water and Bina would be turning that water into ice. What happens if you turn the water into ice? Can you grasp it? So what is Bina doing? In order, you're taking something which is you're aware of, you have a certain sense of, 
and you are trying to make it more concrete, more specific, more rigid. That's what you're doing when you're trying to make yourself understand it. But you already have to have a sense of what it is and what it isn't, its truth, its relevance, its significance before you try and really begin to understand it. Now, how do you actually, so let's say, so there's this thing I've, I, I don't really have a, I have the sense of something, I, but I don't really understand it. What do I now do to try and understand it? Whether you want to call that meditating or not is a semantics issue, but like, what do you do to make yourself understand it? So you know what most people do? They ask someone else to explain it to them. How well does that go? 50-50. 50-50? Yeah. Really? Do you even have their understanding? I mean, some people have really good memories so they can regurgitate the explanation. That doesn't mean they understand it. Okay. I once had the delightful experience of teaching Yeshiva Bacher math. Is what Bacher, why? Because sometimes it's fascinating to see what happens if you have an intelligent and ignorant person. You can do amazing experiments on intelligent and ignorant people. So here's a Bacher. Who, who knows Chassidus very well, he knows Gemara very well, like he can really think deeply, and yet he just never learned math beyond basic addition, subtraction, and multiplication, and, and division of like real regular numbers, right? So teaching him like, like just basic concepts of geometry, like trying to get, and not that he could regurgitate, but really understand them. So getting him to just understand like certain mathematical things, which he's never done before, he's like 20 something years old, but he's very smart. And so you really have to work from the basics. Um, and you know what's really interesting? I can talk and talk and explain and explain and explain and what does he get? Mm-hmm. Nothing. Why not? He needs to practice. He needs to, he needs to do it for himself. When people are explaining things and they're explaining something someone actually understands, what they're, they're not actually doing the explaining. What they're doing is they're prompting you to, to do something on your own. So instead of I tell you, so sometimes someone says, figure it out. Think about it until you understand. Sometimes what a person will do to help you out is they'll say, okay, I'll break it down for you. First consider this, then consider this, then consider this, then consider this. But who's actually having to do each step along the way? You are, right? So I'll give you an example of, 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 of a skill, in other words. Let's say playing piano. If I tell you, sit down and play a concerto, maybe you can do that. I can't do that, right? So what would have to happen? Well, for me, you probably have to start with, okay, these are the notes, start practicing, like doing, playing, no, playing, you know, mastering, just playing one note at a time with a finger, controlling the fingers, okay, and get that out and play some chord, right? You would have to build up by breaking it down into steps, but at the end of the day, telling me what the steps I need to do are, are still, you're still just instructing me what to do something. There's this idea that you're guiding the person, but they're actually having to do the work. Okay? Now, some people are really good at his bainanus, making themselves understand it, and some people are really bad at it. Okay, let me give you a, an, a, just an analogy. This, if something is broken in your house, and let's say you have a you have a right full toolkit, do you know what to do? So it's an, all of a sudden something doesn't work. I don't know your washing machine doesn't work. What do you do? Most people just call their repairman, right? Now, some people they're like, okay, well. They have some sense of like what a washing machine is, and so they say, okay, well, okay, it's not draining. If it's not draining, then that means that somewhere between the wa- something that goes between the water getting out and the water coming in isn't allowing that to happen, right? And they start 
trying to figure out, and they kind of have a way of figuring things out, right? They, they, they're able to navigate which tools to use, which questions to ask. Now, is that skill you can get better at? Yeah, okay. We call this critical thinking. Okay, so, for instance, if you want to understand something, what are some of the tools that you can employ? Okay, one is compartmentalizing, right? Instead of having it be one thing, turn it into a few different things. Okay, so let's try that. People often complain, like I said before, that we don't practice this. Okay, I'm gonna take an idea about God, and I want you to compartmentalize it. Now let's take the one idea and turn it into a few ideas that each one should be understood separately, okay? Um, so someone says, someone wants to understand, like, um, something about God. God's, God created the universe. Compartmentalize that. Like, turn that into a few different ideas. Like, that's a... There's an idea called the universe. Okay, so that's definitely, what do, right? Let's, like, universe, that's something we have to explore. What is universe? Okay, good. What is God? What is creation? So now, instead of one question, we now have three questions. Yeah? Okay. But you have other tools. What is the relationship between God, creation, and universe? Subject, verb, object, right? God is the subject, the verb is creation, and the object is universe, right? And you can have other, right? You can, right? So ha knowing how to kind of pigeonhole things, right? Cause and effect, general principle versus particular, okay? So how do you, right? So compartmentalizing, what about um, compare and contrast? So for instance, universe, I think most of us are pretty okay with exploring what do we mean by universe. What about God? Oh, God is not the universe. Okay, so therefore we're going to set up God and universe also as a contrast set, right? So I'm going to think of what are critical things about the universe that define it as universe and then try and figure out if God is not the universe, then what would that make God be given that he's not the universe? Okay, so you say the quality of the universe is being tangible. Okay, but now I can... But yeah, so we're making subcategories. Now, there are people who are just naturally talented and they can do this like freestyle and actually get somewhere. And then there are people who have a lot of potential but they need to be trained. And then there are people who are just really bad at it and like they only get so far doing this. It's like any skill. Like some people just, you know, no matter how many practicing and how good your training is, you're not going to be a world-class piano player. It's a faculty. It's, you know, okay. Not everybody is an Olympic athlete. But everybody does this to some degree or another. Okay? Now, what about analogies? Are they helpful ways of understanding things? Okay. In fact, name a single thing that you do not directly experience that you understand that you didn't use an analogy to come to understand or someone didn't help you explain it with an analogy. Name anything. Like if, if, not something you don't directly experience in your day-to-day -day life. Flowers growing. Flowers growing? You don't need Yeah, but, but you see the seed. And then you come back later and you see the flower, so you directly experience that. Earth. What? Earth. I mean, you can directly experience birth. What? The earth rotating. How is the earth rotating explained to you? So imagine the earth is this ball. Now, see the ball spinning? Right? It's an analogy. 
Now, some analogies are very sophisticated and profound. Some analogies are very simple. But you take what you've directly experienced or what you've already understood and use that as a model, and it's only a model, to then build an understanding of what you don't understand, right? Now, some people are really good at making analogies or finding analogies, and some people are really bad at it. Okay? And I want, the reason why I mentioned the good and bad is because I want you to see these are faculties. These are, and good and bad, some of that's a degree you can work on. And some of it's, you know, you can't, like, like think of it every, you know, you know, some people are really good at singing, some people are really bad at singing, some people are really bad at singing, if they work on it and get training, they can get really good at it. Some people, even if they get training, they'll stay, relatively speaking, mediocre. Okay, so let's, what would be an example of, a, what would be an example of, uh, of a bad analogy? I don't mean a wrong analogy, a bad analogy. Like, like, it's just, it's not so helpful. But it's not wrong. If it's too complex, right? You're trying to capture too much, too many aspects in one analogy. It, it's mis yeah, it's just confusing. By the way, people do this all the time, like in a class, we explain. Okay, so, so God gives life to everything, but that doesn't mean everything is the same. So that's like fire gives off heat, but when the heat impacts, when the heat, you know shows up uh, when the heat uh, touches uh, clay, it hardens it. When it touches wax, it softens it. Similarly, the life of God, when it touches the wicked, it causes suffering. When it touches the righteous, it causes um, growth and, 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 and health. And that's not because God is actually doing two different things, but because the same godly life affects things differently, like fire affects different materials differently. It's a great analogy, right? But now, then someone in the class always says, okay, but in fire, right, the, 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 the fire produces heat by burning something, right? So, so how does God, what is God burning to produce this godly energy, to produce this energy? Is like that necessarily relevant? Right. You know, people think that, that every little detail has to correspond. And this really happens when you use like an interpersonal relationship, that God is like our husband, we're like his wife, and the giving of the Torah um, is like the wedding. And so someone says, well then, well, then someone says, well, you know, when people get married, there's like a bridal shower. So what's the bridal shower? Well, who, who said that's part of the analogy? Like, maybe it is, maybe it is. Like, you're, you're just like, it's not like, it's not like a strict one-to-one -one correlation. There's one aspect of the concept that I want to make clear by drawing a parallel to things that I, okay. Another example of a bad analogy is if the analogy is very generic. So let me, let me, I'm going to, I'm going to give you three, three analogies, okay? In order to get the, in order to get the lights to work, there needs to be electricity. In order for your body to move, there needs to be a soul in it, okay? Um, I'll use one more analogy. Um, and in order for a rock to fly up in the air, someone, some, there needs to be someone needs to throw it or push it. Yeah, you can't you just levitate up on its own. So, in all of those things, you see an example of one thing being dependent on another, right? So, which one is a good analogy for the way God um, gives us life? Are they all good analogies? But on a very basic level, it seems all the same idea, but if you start thinking about it, like, what happens if you keep running electricity through a light? Eventually, what happens to light? Well, that would mean that God giving us life eventually destroys us. Does that really make sense? Because what's really happening, how does electricity make the light work? Why is it that putting electricity... Well, you, you don't have to think about... You don't have to know about science. You can just think about it conceptually for a second. 
If the light won't shine light unless electricity is in it, but, shine, but putting electricity through it destroys the light, then really how is the light being produced? By no, because even the right amount of electricity over time destroys it. So how is light being produced? By slowly destroying the light bulb. That's how, like, I don't have to know any signs. I just say, like, wait a minute. The light bulb on its own produces any light? Put electricity in it, it produces light? But putting more like, electricity over time, eventually the light bulb gets destroyed? So then what is electricity doing to the light bulb? It's slowly. And the byproduct of the slow destruction of the light bulb is? Yeah. Like, I don't have to learn anything. I just have to observe and think about it. And you could just say that's the part of the analogy that doesn't... Right, but at that point, this is why I mean it's a bad analogy, is that now the analogy is being so vague, it doesn't really give me any greater understanding, any greater clarity. Because one of the things about understanding is that there's precision, it's specific. And so you're right, sometimes I can't find a perfect analogy. I have to take this aspect, comes from this analogy, that aspect from that analogy. And so there's a lot of, a lot of mind juggling, a lot of different things going on in your head at the same time when you're doing this process. Okay? Now, if, if, if you're doing a lot of this mind juggling, it could very easily happen that you confuse yourself. Okay, have you ever had a conversation and then a half hour, hour in, you're talking about something else entirely? And you never stop talking about the first thing and start talking about the second thing. It's just somehow A kind of bled into B, bled into C, until now it's like nothing related at all. If you're doing this, these processes of comparing, contrasting, putting things into categories and really trying to make yourself understand, how do you know when you've gotten totally, you know, you've lost the plot, you're, you're like far off in, in la-la land and totally undermined the original point you're trying to understand? You still need to have that clarity, what is the thing I'm trying to understand? One of the issues that happens is like if you ever tutored somebody and they're confused, if you stop them in the middle of trying to explain something, you say, wait, 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 what's the thing we're trying to explain here? A large percentage of the time, they like, we'll give you like, uh, like somewhere in the A to B to C to D, and the, they lost, like, what, 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 what are we trying to accomplish here? Like, are we trying to, you ever like, you ever read a really bad essay? So a really bad essay is like, there's not like, like what, what point are you making? It's like one sentence leads the next sentence, that's true, but like, if I read the whole essay, I don't like see like, there's nothing, there's no point you're making, there's nothing that's becoming clearer through this. It's like free association, it's what I like to call mental gymnastics. And so if you just like let Bina go off on its own, it just like, can start analyzing and analogizing and compartmentalizing and, 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 and synthesizing anything, but, but there's not a clear sense of, what was the original thing I'm trying to actually turn into something clear, something crystallized in my mind that I can therefore grasp and hold on to? Okay. So now, there's another interesting feature of this. When you're doing this process, remember that game we played a while ago? When you're doing that game, right, if you're really trying to get a common, the commonality every 10 seconds, you have to be like really immersed in it. If you're really trying to understand something you don't understand, what is your mind aware of? Nothing besides what you're trying to understand. Now, that's a very complicated thing. There's a lot of different ways you're trying to understand it. And one of the features that you're also not even aware of yourself, and in a similar sense, anyone, everyone had the experience you watch like a really good movie or you read a really good book and you like aren't, you like lose the sense that you're actually watching the movie or reading the book. 
if you're really involved in his bainus, bonen, to actually make yourself true, really understand something well, you're not even you have the reflexive awareness that you're doing it. Okay. Now, some mental practices, like for instance, if I were to ask everybody, we're going to do a little, we're going to do a little practice thing. Okay, now. Okay. okay. Everyone, close their eyes. And I would like you to all think about, wait till people finish writing their notes so that we can all do this together. Okay, I would like everybody to please close their eyes and think about a cup. Okay, stop. I want a show of hands if you had a picture of a cup in your mind that you were trying to maintain, like picturing like a coffee cup or, okay. I would like a show of hands if you realize there's something about cups you didn't know. Okay. Now, I would like a show of hands if you can tell me at least three different ways of thinking about a cup that you thought about. Okay, what are the three ways? Okay, so it just sounds like you're like listing things about cops. That's not what I was trying to get. Okay. Okay. You said you was that I asked three questions. Asked who had a picture of a cup in their mind? The third question is who thought about a cup in at least three different ways? Okay. Um. What What, what did you discover about cups that you didn't re didn't realize you didn't know? And what did you come to? You weren't sure. And before you did this exercise, you thought you did know what a cup was. Well, I mean, there's a general concept of a cup, but is there like any objective definition? Okay. Um, did anyone consider the fact that it's interesting, like, what differentiates a cup from a drinking bottle from a bowl? Like, cup, like, just, that's an interesting thing, right? Did anyone consider, um, did anyone consider the fact that um, cups have cultural significance? Right? So, for instance, like in Judaism, they give a Kiddush cup, royal goblets in other cultures, right? That cups have this whole other non-functional dimension to them. And why is it that drinking, like, it's very weird, weird to find a culture that has like a ceremonial plate. But it's very common to have a ceremonial cup. Why is that? And I'm not asking you to answer it. 
But do you see like your mind has so many different avenues. Visualization is one of the things. Visualization is not part of this process. Now sometimes visualization can play as an assistant role. Like you can visualize like, you know, a chart. You can visualize um, some, you know, people like using like arrows to keep track of like ideas of causality and things like that. But um, visualization, if you, imagine, if you imagine understanding is a building, visualization is like a scaffold. You don't really need to close your eyes, but many times the more input you're coming getting from the outside world, the harder it is to, to, to write. Now the thing is, it works both ways. The more you're doing this process trying to make yourself understand, the less you're aware. So for instance, this morning I was, I was um, doing some subordinates on this very class, um, and I was completely unaware of all sorts of stuff that was happening around me until I realized um, that I had totally walked past the thing that I intended to stop at, okay? But that can happen, right, when you're really trying to. So sometimes to help you understand, you have to shut out signals, and if you're really doing it well, the mind kind of filters, tunes it out on its own, okay? Um, when there's, there's another, an aspect of this is basically, what, this is what I meant but different ways, there's points of reference. To think about something, and when you, whenever you're trying to understand something, you're also placing it in a context. You're contextualizing it, right? So thinking of a cup from a cultural perspective is an entirely different thing than thinking of a cup from a scientific or engineering perspective, right? What about an environmental perspective, right? Now, the ability to navigate all these different ways to actually build a clearer, more coherent way that you actually comprehend what it is to be a cup in all of its richness and complexity and how it interacts with everything else in your known reality, right? The engagement of that, your mind towards that goal is called the use of bina, and the verb to that is li-bonen, li-sbonen, okay? And the result of that is that instead of this vague notion of like, you know, cup, everyone knows what cup is, like, no, 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 no. Like, I now have a very clear, specific, precise, well-integrated, contextualized under understanding of something. And you can often see when a person has done this with a particular area, a particular concept, and someone else hasn't, and they discuss, is that usually there's frustration between the one who has and the one who hasn't, because the one who hasn't keeps being very slippery. And they don't even realize how slippery they are. They change their meanings of words, change the definitions, change their perspective, change what they're taking for granted. This is also where jargon comes into play because once you do that, you start realizing to communicate this, I might need some very specific words to refer to specific things that I've clarified. And the people that have gone through that understanding process also realize the need for that. So you agree upon very specific words and then you speak to someone who hasn't done that and like you speak past them. Okay? So, for instance, I'm just going to show you What are the edges of an idea? First off, have you ever thought of ideas having edges? Now, tables have edges. What's the edge of an idea? Where it mixes? Well, that's not an edge at all. Okay, so so right, so now right, so yeah, the clear ending of this. But let's think about this for a second. Edges are the end of one thing and the beginning of something else, right? But edges are not just that. For instance, edges, edges have specific qualities to them. For instance, let's take the cup. There's an internal edge to the cup, 
and an external edge to the cup. What's the difference? Right. Right. So, right, the idea that there's the end of something and the beginning of something else is there has to be some sort of um, appropriateness of why this thing is adjacent to that thing. Right? If I just take a bunch of objects and throw them in a pile and then one thing happens to be touching another thing arbitrarily, right, we look and say something's wrong with that. That's trash. Right? Okay. Things should be like, so like if someone sees a book on the floor, like that doesn't belong there, where does a book belong? On a shelf or on the table. But the table, the legs of the table, they belong. Right? So the, the edge of something is not just the end of one thing being of something else, but also t- speaks about a certain kind of relationship. So for instance, just talking about tables, floors support tables, tables support cups and books. It would be really weird to put the table on the book. Books aren't, right? The top of a book is not supposed to support a table. The top of a table is supposed to support the bottom of a book. Okay? Now, once you start thinking of that, you start to realize ideas end, and then you have another idea, and those ideas have very specific relationships. Okay? And so you can start thinking about a space of ideas. Now, someone who's really thought about these things, really understood these things, they'll start using terms like the edge of an idea, the location of an idea, where is this idea located? And then someone else is like, what are you talking about? Okay? And this is true in every, I'm using his bonus itself, the discipline of understanding how the, the, this part of your mind works as the thing. But the same thing is true. Like if you get two musicians that are talking and they really understand how music works, do they have all sorts of terms? Yeah, which are usually Italian versions of like everyday normal words, right? Or lawyers have Latin versions of everyday normal words. And then the other people, right? Now imagine they were speaking in English. Um, if you learn halacha, you have the same thing. So one of my favorite halachic words is um, cutting off its head. You can't do that. It's cutting off its head. It's like a common expression in the laws of Shabbos. Thinking head? Whose head? Who's been cutting off a head? What kind of disturbing thing is that? But that's just like once you've dealt with a thing and you realize there's a certain aspect and a certain way that things relate to you, you, you need a word for it. And so one of the examples of, of a certain idea happens to be cutting off the head of a chicken. And so that just becomes the name of the idea, the name of the principle, the name of, the, of, of how this thing relates to that thing. And so the more a person really does this, they're actually building an inner reality that is very rigid. And, and I, rigid, I don't mean it's, it, I mean, things are not flexible. They can be nuanced. In fact, they are nuanced. There's a lot of, but it's not, it's not, It, 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 it's, it's, it's very much like, um, if you think of like a human body, okay? It's really bad if one body system doesn't stick to exactly what it's supposed to be doing. So even though the body is very complex and very rich, right? Each little particular thing, like what happens if you like start messing with a particular hormone and like start making it a little too much or a little too little? What happens to the whole body? It can create some out of whack things. So there, what ends up happening is you build this, which is a lot of, it's very precise, it's very clear, it's very nuanced, it's very complex. That gives it a kind of agility because there's so many little subcategories. And like, like think about a lawyer. On the one hand, a lawyer is very rigid, but, a law, but, but, but the rigidity is in very tiny, tiny categories, and then they can employ them at will. Someone once used the following analogy, is that you should always have black and white thinking. Spainin produces black and white thinking. Black and white thinking is very good. The problem with black and white thinking is most people have one big box labeled black and one big box labeled 
white. The proper way of black and white thinking is imagine you have a chessboard with um, a million by a million squares. If you look at it from a distance, what does it look like? Gray. But if you zoom in, each little square is labeled, right? If we get very, this specific thing is this, this specific thing is that, right? The problem with black and white thinking is when it's very broad. It's very, it, it, and that's what, this is what, this, this, is what this, this process of understanding is doing. Understanding Doesn't doing that is, not allow for complexity? Like, that's what creates complexity. That's what creates complexity. Let me give you an example, okay? Um, I'm going to tell you a halacha, and you give me your reaction, okay? Um, Okay. Um, if if an if somebody falls down a well and you pick up the la pick up the ladder, you can't be put to death for that, even if they get stuck in the well and die as a result. Okay. However, if you push them down the well and kill them, then you can be put to death. Got it. You're walking by, there's somebody there, you push them into the well and then they die, they're liable for death. But they're in the well already and you pull out the ladder and now they starve to death and down there, then you're not liable for death. Your reaction, please. I want your reaction, someone else's reaction. I seen faces. I want someone who's making a face to give me their reaction. Explain, what, what are you reacting to? Yeah. I see a lot of people in, told them you're going to do it just to kill them. Why are we jumping to not learning Torah? Yeah. Okay. Mm, that's an interesting question. Are they liable for something? If they're not liable for death, does that make them like, that makes it perfectly okay? Right? Okay. So here's the thing, right? If all I have is a category of okay action, not okay action, good or evil, and like I have to label, if those are my only two options, now I have a problem because what am I supposed to do? I'm saying like, well, if they're both evil, then they're supposed to, like, why we treat them differently? I have to have, start to have more specific things. Now, when I start having more specific things, immediately it's necess this, this urge to like slap a label on it goes away and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Number one here, what is the actual statement here? Does this statement have to do with, the, with, with murder or with the death penalty? What was that actually halacha about? What was it about? No, it was about the death penalty. If you murder somebody this way, you're liable for the death penalty. If you murder somebody that way, you're not liable for the death penalty. It's actually telling me something about, which means I should now consider 
instead of thinking about the moral wrongness of murder, really, what is the place of the death penalty? What is this? Where, how does, what, right? It's more telling me about when the death penalty, right? It says, but that means I have to start breaking things into more specific boxes. This is not a statement about whether that's a good action or a bad action. It's not even a statement that necessarily about one is worse than the other per se, right? There could be any number of reasons why the death penalty is not employed, not necessarily even because it's more, it's less of a crime, right? Like, what is, the, what is the Torah view of the death penalty? What is its place? Why is it there? And, only, and, and it's in that context I would have to understand that. So it's not an issue of not having richness or not having complexity. It's an idea that, and this is exactly what Bina abhors, vagueness substituting for sophistication. Generalization substituting for real understanding. Okay? And by the way, this means realizing can there be multiple competing perspectives? Okay, but, but, but using your being to say, well, it depends on your point of view. No, no, no. There are eight point of views, and I will tell you how this is viewed from each eight, one of the eight, and in which ways they are similar, in which ways they are different, and that is the total view of the picture. Let me give you just a physical example. I have a book. Does it look one way from this perspective? Look a different way from this perspective? Okay, so is it, is it a matter of perspective? Yeah, but someone says, what does the book look like? Say so it's a matter of perspective. No, 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 no. <laughs> That's not an answer. You say it like this, it's a three-dimensional object, right? Which means if you, and human beings see only two-dimensional projections of things, right? Which means that you're always seeing the front at the expense of the back, right? The top at the expense of the bottom. My right at the expense of my left of the book, right? Okay, and you can have to, and you're going to have to have one, and, and so now, on the first of it, you pick one as opposed to the other, but since you can angle, you can have one of those, right, with two adjacents. And then you can say, okay, so if you look at it from the top, it looks like this, but you can angle a little bit and see some of the top and some of the front and some of the right side. Right? But you can't just say it looks like a unicorn prancing in a field of lollipops, because it doesn't, from any perspective. Right? It's a matter of perspective, it's not an answer. It's a matter of perspective, just tells you that there's more than one valid answer, and therefore the true answer is somehow a totality of all of them. So you just want a lot more categorization, a lot more specifics, a lot more nuance. And that's what, that, Bina insists on this. So someone answers it, someone answers you and says, oh, it's not a black and white matter, but this needs to be not breaking it down enough. That Bina would say, then, then what basically is either you're obfuscating, you don't really know what you're talking about, or you have some agenda as to why you don't want to get down to it, or you don't have time for it or something, right? There's no such thing as gray area. Not, re not from Bina's perspective. Not the, the, this fact that Bina, no. What about like life choices? Or like well, this is the thing. Life choices is what I was telling you or before. Is that life choices, what Bina would say is that the, the, the life choices most of the issues happen is when you're when you're asking a real you're asking a practical question as an abstract question you're mixing categories in other words i can give you this i can give you a class i'll give you an example i can give you a class right now on the basic laws of birth control in judaism okay now i won't you know why i won't that's not why because invariably, what will the question and answer session become about? The topic. The topic, and, and in that, all of a sudden, the real life specifics makes all of the difference, right? So if you're doing an overview of the general concept, then there's a level of, 
abstraction you can't go past. And if you want to deal with a real life situation, you have to get into every specific detail of that real life situation. Are any two life real life situations exactly identical? And so this is one of the reasons why halacha questions are never answered in the abstract. You have, so if you're trying to understand the halacha as a learning matter, there's a level of um, simplicity. And then if you want to get to that further level of complexity, you need a real life case. But you can't ask a, you can't get the level of clarity of a real life case in the abstraction. That's mixing categories, it doesn't work. I remember when I was first learning um, um, for rabbinic coordination and I, I asked some of these like very abstract questions and uh, the, the rabbi who taught us smicha, rabbinic coordination, he said, is this a real issue? I said, no, he says, well then don't ask me because like, like there's a million follow-up questions to know exact nuances and details. Like the basic principles are at play here, but now there's a question of how do you weigh this specific thing? And that, that no two situations are exactly identical. Okay? In other words, not everything, is an al- not everything can be understood in this kind of algorithmic formula. This is why, by the way, you need living, living people to rule on halakhic issues. You can't just like ask a, rab- ask a computer or even just look stuff up in a book. One of the reasons why the idea of having a code of Jewish law was and still is controversial because there's always a level of application that requires a real-life person to apply to real-life circumstances and that you need to have the, this level of what's called applied bina or tavuna to be able to do that. There's an element of bina which is able to take the abstract and go to the concrete, specific, real-life scenario. Okay? Or vice versa. To figure out what principle should be extracted from a previous ruling and previous real-life case. Um, and that's the same thing true. Like if you speak to like doctors, like, like, when doctors say like, like this is healthy, right? Okay, but this is healthy is usually like a statistical generalization. And like a really good doctor and a really good person, assuming like the insurance labs and half the time will do what? Ask a lot of questions and try and figure out what's it, because all those things can make a difference. And yes, in some way that human beings, generally their minds can't handle that level of sophistication. If you could hold all of that in your head, then you would like be able to figure out everything in the abstract, but you can't. Yeah. In regard to the edges of ideas, do we care about the relationship between the ideas more than the differences, or does it depend on the context, or is there no difference because the differences between them are what influence the relationship? All of the above. So there's no difference. Or it does all of the above. It does depend, and there's no difference. That's right. It depends on what way you're trying to understand ideas. So here's the interesting thing. Understanding ideas also has a goal-oriented. What is the purpose of this understanding? Am I trying to understand something so I can apply the information? Am I trying to understand something so I can use it to model the world? Am I trying to... Like, what's the goal? I'll give you an example, yeah? Your spouse is upset with you. Should you try and understand why they're upset with you? Mm-hmm. Yes? No? Yes. Yes. Well, why? That's not a good answer. That's really no. It's another. That's a really bad answer. So you don't do it again. That's a really bad answer. Really, really bad answer. You know why? What What does that presuppose? What should constrain your actions at all times? What What their happiness, right? But now, if that really happens, you now have a relationship between two adults, two human beings, or what do you have? You have one person. And you have somebody who's like, you just like some sort of projection of the other person's wants and needs. That, that's actually very, that, that, that's the kind of thing that like, it works until like you start to realize that like, either resentment builds or people start feeling alienated. 
you don't always need to understand why they're upset. You don't even understand me. I mean, you need to understand that they're upset, not why. Mm. Let me ask you a question. If you're upset about something and someone you care about um, doesn't get why you're upset, how does that feel? And if they say, no, 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 you have the right to be upset as if some generic human right that everybody has to be upset and they really believe that. But like what makes you upset like flies right over their head? Does it now you feel like you feel validated by that? No. Part of validating another person's experiences is understanding how it makes sense at the very least to them. Right? Now, at the end of the day, some of the things are really irreconcilable. Like, not every people, two, two people are exactly the same. And there are things about yourself that you're not going to be able to just abandon to make your spouse happy. And you're going to have to learn to deal with that on both sides. I mean, if it's a petty thing, like, okay, like, you know, you should always try to be more forgiving. But, like, at the end of the day, like, sometimes people have very deep, very deep, deeply don't agree on something. And you have to have tolerance for that. So if my goal in understanding why my spouse is upset with me is so that they can feel validated that I'm not dismissing their perspective, does that change how I go about understanding it as opposed to trying to figure out what I did wrong so I don't do it again versus trying to psychoanalyze them as what about their childhood makes them feel that way, right? Trying to understand also has a goal oriented. It gives, from what perspective are you trying to make sense of it? By the way, we do this all the time. We try and make sense of our own actions in such a way that we are not a villain. That's a way that you use your, your, your animal souls made in China version of being all the time. Whatever you do, your mind is busy trying to understand and define and categorize that in such a way that you are not a villain, regardless of what you've done. And if you really care about somebody, then you tend to extend that use of your bina to them as well. Uh, that's, by the way, a good sign that like a relationship, whether it's spouses, children, parents, or something wrong, is that instead of trying to figure out why they're not a villain, <laughs> you're trying to figure out why they are. <laughs> like, it's, it's fine. I don't know if it's like, good or moral or ethical, but it's, it's not the end of the world, like just on a day-to-day -day level, if like, you know, the, 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 the person at the DMV was mean to you and then your mind goes into how why are they such a cruel person and trying to like turn them into the biggest villain since Hitler. It's, I mean, it's not the greatest thing, but it's not the end of the world, right? But when, when your spouse did something inconsiderate and then your mind tries to figure out how and make sense of that as the tip of the iceberg of this deep-seated villainy, um, then you've got, it should be the opposite. Your mind should be trying to figure out how to make sense of that in such a way that it's as innocent and as, you know, banal as can possibly be that really they're a good person. Yeah. So if you get to the point of using your bina that you in your analyzing of yourself you can recognize and accept that you may have been the villain and you, know, you can genuinely accept that is that coming more from the godly soul and so the animal soul? That's definitely the animal soul. It's definitely the animal soul. Because the animal soul, one of the things the animal soul does is a preoccupation with defining yourself. The godly soul would define this was an act of villainy, this was inappropriate, this is who it hurt, this is why it was bad. It's not really interested in self-definition too much. Yeah. So if, you're, if you are coming to terms to understand why it was wrong and who it hurt, yeah, and where your responsibility lies and how you can make it better, that could come from the godly soul. But if it's all about, am I a good person, am I a bad person, 
really focusing on that, then, then no. It's, yeah, yes? For people who are very involved in self-criticism and criticism of others, is that the other side of the same exact point of what yeah, you're Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's all and of these like, things are... In my experience with people, I don't feel like everyone's always trying. I know the people who are never... Right. <laughs> a team with never being villains and also those those who have always Right. So usually, what, what usually the way that's explained in Chassidus is that, that, that when a person like has, for whatever reason, has failed to give a successful explanation of why they're the hero, then they either, because it still has to be pretty, you have to still be the center of the story, so either you become the central victim or the central villain. Right. So we tend to, to, we tend to, be towards hero when that doesn't work then villain or villain or victim tends to be the next best thing yeah someone asked me once about Lilith mm-hmm. yeah that's the, that 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 thing about how I'm always the villain or how I'm always the victim and explaining everything in terms of that yeah, that's the demonic voice of Lilith in your head hijacking your Bina faculty so yay <laughs> yes it's your or it's your animal well, it's the animal bean. It's not the it's not the bean of the godless soul. The bean of the godless soul. Is it ever? Is it possible to busy itself with something that isn't like Torah? Or? So the bean of the godly soul is really all about how to make sense of everything in terms of God, or how to make God sense make sense of God in terms of other things, right? But so it's someone's just trying to understand like the mathematical. Then they're using the bean of their animals, right? As we're going to see, most of the time, your godly chachma, your godly bina, tends to remain pretty much in the background because they tend to have, when you have an ulterior motive that has nothing to do with a real perception of reality for, for its own sake, which ultimately is about God, then it's usually the animal soul kicking in. But to understand how these faculties work, it's helpful to, you know, to draw the similarities. It's like a, like a plastic model of a body for anatomy class. It's helpful. Okay, so, um, now, what I want to point out is that Bina and Chachma have this very interesting tension, which is that you can get way too involved in analyzing and synthesizing and trying to make sense of everything that you're no longer open to anything new, right? And you're just like stuck in a rut. And you could also have the reverse, that you're way too open to things, you're way too, you know, being exposed to new things that you never give yourself time to actually really make yourself truly understand anything. So there's a problem, is that Chachma and Bina, there's a tension between them. And the idea is not which one should you use, but how do you use them in a way that they mutually reinforce each other rather than come at the expense of each other. In other words, let's use the analogy, because it's an analogy in Kabbalah, in marriage. Should marriage be about the husband and at the expense of the wife, or the wife at the expense of the husband? Neither. But don't the husband and wife, aren't they different people with different personalities and different needs and different issues? So then what should be the appropriate way of doing this? Finding a way to bring those two things and so that they mutually reinforce each other, right? Their differences bring about something rather than their differences simply being... Um, one at the expense of the other. And so the idea is how the real, the real master of their seichel, either naturally or through, through guidance and training, gets a sense of how do I use my chachma and how do I use my bina in a way they mutually enforce each other. 
how do I know that I should stop being open to new ideas right now and I really need to make sure I understand what I've already become aware of? It's a thing that many people don't do. They want to learn the next thing. They want to hear the new idea. And you ask yourself, but, but do, you really under, do you really, really understand what you've already heard? Okay? Everyone's heard of the idea of Hashgacha Pratis, Divine Providence? Yeah? Okay. What's Hashgacha Pratis? What's Divine Providence? What? It happens for a reason. What does it mean happens for a reason? What happens for a reason? What's the reason? Like, like you mean like when, when, my, when my neighbor got hit by a truck and died, that's because God wanted to kill them? That's what you mean? That's supposed to make me feel good? So, oh, so that didn't happen for a reason. So, so then what do you mean? Like, what, what do you mean it happened for a reason? Like, like, what? So my neighbor I get hit by a truck and died. Okay, so let's do some quick history. If everything happens for a reason, what obvious question should you then ask? What's the reason? And if everything happens for a reason, there has to be something that doesn't need a reason because like, the reason why I went to the store was to get milk and the reason why I need milk was so that my coffee would taste good. The reason why my coffee would taste good so I would drink the coffee. The reason I need to drink the coffee so I would be alert for class. The reason I need to be alert for class so I could teach properly. The reason I should teach properly so you should... Like, like, this can't go on at an There has to be just something which, which is the reason for other things and doesn't need a reason, right? If you're saying everything has a reason, there has to be the... You know, okay. Well... I mean, Hashem doesn't, isn't a reason for anything to happen. Hashem can just be Hashem and nothing else happens, and that's good. Mm. So we've got a problem there. Here's another thing, right? Here, here, here's another thing. Do you mean everything happens for a reason? Like, how? Are, are you serious? Like, everything? The fact that I put the cup here happened for a reason? Yeah. Can you, ex- can you, like, like... <laughs> what? No, no, but... <laughs> I mean, that's the, so, so there's another thing. It's like, what do we mean by reason? I was using reason, I was using reason as the sense of what it's meant to achieve. It's having like some kind of purpose in it. But you, what you're saying is like the, the cause that made it happen. I mean, that's kind of banal. Like everything has a cause in that sense. Okay, could we like spend the next 30 hours like really trying to like try and get some real clarity on this topic? I don't know. That's another question, which is, is the idea of Hashgach for divine supposed to make feeling better? By the way, it is supposed to, like if you actually see it in the context in Judaism, it's really supposed to make you feel better. Which goes back to like putting ideas in context and edges of ideas. An idea is supposed to be adjacent to another idea. How does it fit? Like is that is the idea that everything's supposed to be used? What is that supposed to do in terms of my sense of significance, in terms of my sense of free will, in terms of my sense of safety and security? Are supposed to undermine that, strengthen that? Am I understanding? We could spend a lot of time trying to get really make ourselves understand that, right? Is that all on your own? Or you need- well, that depends on the person. Can, some people are Mozart, and they put them down in front of a piano at age four, and voila. Most people are not. Okay. Yeah. Does my just go back to the whole conversation about how God can have desires? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It does go back. In fact, analogies might be helpful here. Can someone give me an example of hashkacha 
that doesn't involve God, because whenever we have speaking about God gives me the heebie-jeebies. Analogies are a good place to start. What do you call the person who makes sure food is kosher? Mashkiach, because he's involved in hashkacha. And what does that mean? He's supervising. So if you start thinking about that in that context, that maybe give you some more clarity, and then you go back, and what ways God similar, what ways God different? I'm not going to do this all now. I'm just saying, like, you can, you can read a lot of books and read another art and, and do a lot of that, but then they ask yourself, like, beyond having, like you said, well, everyone knows what a cup is, when you start thinking about, like, really what defines a cup, really how does this fit, really how does that make sense with something else, what are its components? And you start to realize that, you're, that, that most of our concepts that we do have in our minds are these, like, they're water. We can see them. We can touch them, but when we really try and grab hold of them, we slip right through them. And Bina is the faculty that insists and makes it that that not be the case, that there's real, true comprehension. Okay? And it's, in a certain sense, in some ways it's a more difficult task than Chachma. In some ways it's an easier task, depending also on person's personality. But the idea is that you can't really truly have, neither of them are useful on their own. Having a bunch of vague concepts that slip through you and, 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 and morph into other things. Like again, think about it in real life. When you have clarity on a subject and you're trying to talk to someone who has zero clarity on it, and they keep switching what they mean, in anything, like even the most basic everyday things, it's extremely frustrating. Now the thing to be careful is that you don't want to build such a, 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 a rigid understanding that's divorced from the original truth that you became aware of, the original concept. Okay? Let me give you just a very basic example of what I mean. Um, most interesting philosophical questions actually start from an unspoken or sometimes spoken premise, which is that life um, has some kind of value to it and meaning to it. Now, so what does that mean if a person develops a philosophy of nihilism that life has no meaning? They've thought about it, they've tried to make sense of it, and their conclusion is life is meaningless. They've kind of forgot what they were trying to make sense of. There was initial awareness, there was initial sense through the Chachma that life is meaningful, and then the question is, what is that meaning? What is life? How does that really work? Make that clear. Make, and in, and in, their, in their failure to do that, they ended up just rejecting the original thing. And the way you know that they made a mistake is that the people that conclude that life is meaningless, like really deeply, truly, how does that make them feel? Mm -hmm. But if life is, me if, if really like life is meaningless, then just move on. Like, okay, life is meaningless, what's the deal? Like, it's not a big deal. It's meaningless that it's meaningless, right? But somehow the fact that it's meaningless really, like, it seems like a big deal. Like, they have to go on a crusade of convincing everyone else about the folly of pursuing a meaningful life. And that somehow gives them meaning in life. Like, I'm miserable, everyone's miserable along with me. In other words, there's still some level of their mind which has like, you know, there's a truth to this idea of life as meaning and they haven't rejected it, but all of their understanding became divorced from that. And working to do that is, a, is, a, is, a, is kind of marrying the Chachman Bina together and that's a, that's a skill. Some people are better at it, some people are worse than it, you can get better at it. What is the marrying? The marrying of... of, of, of of keeping clear what was the initial thing you were trying to understand and never undermining that in your attempt to understand it. Right. Imagine if you were a defense lawyer who's trying to understand why the client isn't guilty and he concludes from that that the client is guilty. That's a very good defense lawyer. Right. 
I'm trying to understand what makes life meaningful. My conclusion is that life isn't meaningful. Well, look, that you, you switch something, something got detached along the way. That's the exact thing. That's, this is an example where, where Chacham and Bina are working together. Because if Chacham and Bina are working together, whatever is the original concept which you had a sense of and you had awareness of that this is, this is something that is true and worth getting clarity about, you don't then, in getting clarity about, throw it in the garbage. Okay? In other words, this is, this is something like in math, they try and have very clear, what are the things that we're taking as absolutes and then trying to build off and make sense of? We call them axioms. Chachma provides the axioms that Bean is working with to make sense of things. And so if along the way you end up rejecting your original premises, then those really weren't your original premises. It wasn't the original thing you were really trying to understand or you like switched gears along the way. And, and, and doing this is, it's, 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 it's What if you, you have know. like another Chachma so if you have another Chachma insight, then usually what it does is it, it never says the original one was wrong. It says the original one was distorted. One of the things that happens is that truth doesn't contradict truth. So if something, if there was truth in the original concept, then another concept will never erase it. All it will do is recontextualize it. And that recontextualization might radically change how you make sense of it and how you understand it. But it can't be that you first had, a, if your Chachma is working properly, you have a sense that this is true and then no, it's not true. Um, but you know what I want you to understand is that he's describing these as not passive things that your mind just does automatically, but as actually faculties that you can learn to master and then control. And then in our context, we're going to direct them to a relationship with Hashem. Okay. I want to just mention one thing very quickly. Tomorrow, I want to take a short break. Um, from the actual text of the Tanya and talk about two methods of doing this, specifically in the context of God, because I want, even though it's not written in the Tanya, but the Alter Rebbe's son and grandson, were the second and third Rebbe's, respectively, they had two different methods for doing this, that they taught their Hasidim, of using the Chachman Bina together, and I want to briefly describe both to turn make the, what we're saying now into a little more practical. So when he goes on to say, using being misbeinen in God, marrying the chachamina in, 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 in terms of being coming, conceiving of God and then truly comprehending God, what does that actually mean as opposed to leaving the, just this vague descriptions? So even though it's not written in the Tanya, I think it's important to, to describe those things. Um, it, what? Yes. Hisbainus using Meichen of Ima and Hisbainus using Meichen of Abba. A Bina-centered Hisbainus versus a Chachma-centered Hisbainus. Knowing the names doesn't really help you. So I, I just want to describe what they are and then give my plug for which one I think is more reasonable to attempt. If you're serious. All right. Why is it the most important? Because the whole premise